the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Rhonda McDaniel, Chairwoman McDaniel, good morning. How are you? I am wonderful. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining me. Let's start with what the NRC put out this weekend. I think it's going public this morning, a seven-figure buy for this ad, which is airing on cable news across the United States. A president who promised to bring us together should not be pushing agendas that tear us apart. Our best future will not come from Washington schemes or socialist dreams. It will come from you, the American people. We are not adversaries. We are family. I am confident that our finest hour is yet to come. The Republican National Committee is responsible for the content of this advertising. So, Chairwoman McDaniel, very powerful 30-second ad. Why are you up already? It's early for the RNC. Oh, I think it's important to show the contrast between our parties right now as we watch the Biden administration double down on policies that are dividing our country. Uh, we see what's happening at the border. We see the energy crisis. But more than that, we see the vitriol. We see the lack of bipartisanship, things that he said in his inaugural speech that he has not done. And to see Tim Scott and what he did in his rebuttal to the State of the Union shows the optimism of the Republican Party and our belief that our strength comes from the American people. And I want to get that message out early when it's not cluttered on the airways with tons of other political ads. Does it also mark the kickoff of what is the 2022 campaign season? I believe so. I, I've, I've always been a believer that you, you've got to start earlier and earlier. Uh, voting is starting earlier and earlier. And I think the contrast could not be more clear between our two parties right now. And a lot of that seen at the state level. Look at Republican governors who have led through COVID, who followed the science, but kept their economies open, kept kids back in school, uh, and, and did a remarkable job to Santis, Nome, Abbott. The list goes on and on. And then you look at governors like Whitmer from my state of Michigan and Cuomo and Newsom, who, you know, were applauded by the media and revered at the beginning, but have shown huge deficits in how they deal with COVID and the lack of transparency and their states are suffering for it. So, Chairwoman McDaniel, there's a, the best modern political memoir is Mitch McConnell's uh, book, The Long Game. In it, the leader says, you can start too late, but you can never start too early. <laughs> have you taken that admonition to heart? I, I absolutely have taken that admonition to heart. The RNC's on the ground already. We're building out our state programs across the country, putting staff on the ground already. You have to do that, especially many people don't recognize the huge gains we had with minority communities in 2020. That is a direct result of investment in communities that hadn't heard about the Republican Party, that habitually voted Democrat. And when we engage with these communities, they go, you know what? I am a Republican. And that's why you've seen more Hispanic voters and African-American and Asian voters coming over to the Republican Party. And that investment starts right now with the RNC being in those communities. 
Now, I wrote over the weekend in the Post that I had been to the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and you were there. I talked to you in one of the interviews I conducted, and then I was at the RGC last week in uh, uh, Nashville. I'm not sure if you were there. I didn't see a uh, chairwoman. I was if you not. Were... Okay, so I, I, we, we talked at the first one. Both the NRSC chair, Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, and the RGC chair, Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, are ebullient at the energy in their grassroots and at their fundraising. How is the fundraising at the Republican National Committee? You know, it's really strong. And with with coming out of not having the White House, we were a little concerned, as you would be. And we had a record march. We have been we came in with a very strong cash on hand. We just transferred five million to the NRSC and five million to the NRCC. So we're helping our partners as well. We're really working as a team. There are strength in numbers in the Republican Party. And if we don't work together, we will lose. So it's important as a party that we're united, we show a united front, and we work as a team. As we move forward to what is a critical, critical election for our party and our country, as we, we try to take back the House and the Senate in 2022. How's the small donor number? Very strong. At our first quarter, about 80% of our donations came from small donors, and we're continuing to see engagement with those small donors. When Leader McCarthy first told me about WinRed, I was skeptical that you could ever catch up with the Democrats. How is WinRed doing, and is that where you send people to get involved on a small donor level? The strength of WinRed is it, it acts like a utility, Hugh. Everybody can use it, but it's stronger with everybody on it because we can work together and, and upsell and conduit together, and it gives a real advantage uh, in competing with ActBlue, which has been this juggernaut fundraising behemoth for the Democrats. Uh, WinRed in its first year and a half raised $2.2 billion, which is what ActBlue did in its first 10 years. So it's been uh, a huge tool in giving us a competitive advantage against Democrats. And I think it's a factor into why, as to why we picked up 15 House seats in 2020, which nobody predicted, but our candidates were actually able to compete because they had the money to be on the air. Now, Chairman McDaniel, one of the key things is redistricting. And I know you're watching that, but would you describe people for people the redistricting oversight role played by the RNC? So there's actually a national redistricting trust that's been created. Um, the Democrats had something similar. Uh, I created it four years ago when I came on as chair. It allows all the interested parties to work together um, outside of a hard dollar political committee that's way in the weeds. Um, but it's critical. Obama and Holder are going to spend so much money in lawsuits to try and redraw the lines. They did it in North Carolina and Pennsylvania in the last four years, and they're going to take everything to the courts. We need to be engaged. The good thing is we picked up 135 state legislative seats in, in, in 2020, and they didn't flip a single state chamber. So we control a vast majority of the seats that are going to be redistricted. But this is going to be a battle, and Democrats are ready to fight in the courts, and they're raising money. And we have the National Redistricting Trust, which is working with the RNC, the NRCC, the state parties, and the RSLC to keep the, the Republicans uh, in charge of the lines that they were elected to draw. Now, Chairwoman, I'm curious about the legal effort because the rules for the Democrats are the rules for the Republicans and vice versa. The number one prohibition is you may not use race or gender to draw lines. That's an anti-constitutional line, and that is clear, and the Republicans need to enforce that in places like Massachusetts and Illinois and Connecticut, where Democrats, and New York especially, where Democrats abuse this process far more than Republicans have abused this process anywhere. Will the Republicans litigate when they believe that the Democrats have broken the borderline, the bottom line rules? 
Yes, the Republicans actually are already engaged in some litigation. People don't probably don't even realize that this is going on. Illinois just did some interesting stuff with their redistricting, uh, putting out the lines before the census numbers had completely come through to them. Um, so we're we're following every single state right now, and we're we're heavily engaged. And this national redistricting trust was critical for the party. We never had this before. The Democrats had this on on their side of the aisle, and we needed this entity. And luckily, we had some great people come forward four years ago when I became chair and and pitched it. And now it's it's been created, and it's it's really only focused on redistricting, which we needed one entity focusing on that only. I'm going to talk about Glenn Youngkin in Virginia in just a moment. But will you go into the tall weeds with me on the National Redistricting Trust? Who can contribute to that? What does it do? And who helms it? So a, a gentleman named Adam Kincaid helms it. Uh, and we'll get a link to you on how you can contribute. But anybody can contribute. Uh, all, all, and there's a C4 element to it. So corporate, personal, anybody can contribute to it. And it's going to be critical as... Uh, we head into these lawsuits that we know Obama and Holder are going to bring forward to try and uh, reshape the map. Now, I'm very excited about Glenn Youngkin. I'm a Virginian. I supported <laughs> him during the primary. I, you know, I, I moved yeah, back here. Good win. I, 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 I came back here from California uh, fleeing taxes and government. And I find that Virginia is a lot higher taxation than when I left in the 80s. How do you feel about the Glenn Youngkin campaign? You know, he's a great candidate, and I think he's putting that, that race in play. We're going to obviously be investing in Virginia. We already are, but we're going to be looking at what the RGA does and Doug Ducey, and we want to see what they're investing as, as we go forward. Uh, but he's off to a really good start. You know, Virginia has been a heartbreaker for Republicans with Ed Gillespie, and, uh, you know, we get so close, and it, the Democrats have just dominated that. Um, that Washington, D.C. kind of area, Arlington, and, and really taking over a lot of the state at the urban area. So I think Youngkin is somebody, though, who could break through. I think he is. I, he's in northern Virginia a lot, but he's the only candidate I've ever seen in Virginia who can actually lay claim to having lived for a long number of years in Richmond, a long number of years in the Virginia Beach and Norfolk area, and a long number of years in northern Virginia. He actually knows the state population centers firsthand. Well, I, w I remember being here when a Republican got elected. I, was it Gilmore or what I, uh, who talked about yes. the no-car tax? I lived in Virginia when that happened. So, uh, you know, I think Virginia is a state that recognizes after the horrific governorship of Northam that it may be time to make a change. And if you're going to make a change, the best time is coming out of a Democrat governorship. Now, uh, Chairwoman McDaniel, I want to go to what Rick Scott told me about at the NRSC. He thought there were pickups in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire, that there were five potentials for Republicans, but you can't win without a candidate. How is recruitment? It's good. I mean, Rick Scott's really running the, the point on that for the NRSC because the RNC obviously can't get involved in primaries, but I feel good about the candidates that are coming forward. Um, and also we have tough races in Pennsylvania and Ohio and North Carolina where we have retirements and, and Missouri. So th this is going to be a large map for the Senate committee. We need one seat to flip the Senate. We need four to flip the House. I can't think of a better partner than Rick Scott and Tom Emmer to uh, be leading both of those committees as we head into 2022. Now, on the governor's side, Doug Ducey was my guest last week. He pointed to Maine, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Kansas, and New Mexico as all open to GOP challengers. Again, I know you don't get involved in primaries. Are you happy with where recruitment is in all of those states, or is there one where we need someone to step up? 
You know, um, I, I feel really good about all of those states. I'm, I'm probably more focused on Michigan. We have two candidates that are looking at it that I'm pretty excited about. One, a woman named Tudor Dixon and another, um, James Craig, the uh, former Detroit police chief. And uh, I think he would be a very exciting candidate and absolutely put that state in play. Uh, and uh, as a re- Michigan resident, I really want to make sure Republican wins there. You feel about Michigan as I feel about uh, uh, Virginia and Ohio. Now, Chairwoman, I I talked to you about this when uh, I was interviewing you in front of the audience at uh, the NRSC. I say we because I am a Republican and always have been, and I'm transparent about it. I think the the best that media can do is be fair and full disclosure about where their political views are, which is what I've always believed in. But the media coverage is getting worse and worse and worse. Every network except Fox— is really gone left wing. Uh, Some of the Sunday shows remain fair, some balance on them, but just generally network coverage is left wing. Do you agree with me on that? 100% I agree with you on that. So what I asked Larry Hogan last week, and he agreed with it, is what I asked you and Tom Emmer and Rick Scott. Is the party going to take over debates both in this cycle and in 2024? Name the moderators and allow networks to cover, but refuse to allow networks to distort? I think that's a great question because uh, the RNC has a debate committee that we just formed, and you'll probably be seeing some news on that this week on our engagement with the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, Because as you know, as we all know, they started the first debate well after uh, over a dozen states had started voting. They switched the second debate to virtual without consulting the candidates. And it's made it of what I would say is a, a makeup that is not bipartisan. It's, it's fairly partisan, even though there are Republicans on the committee. So I'm concerned about the debates. And then beyond that, the media. I mean, look at this week. The media had to admit finally, even though they denied it just because Trump was president, that the coronavirus escaped from a Wuhan lab. Why would they not look at, at that credibly? Why would they not investigate that? What a failure for the media to walk away from a legitimate lead and a concern that Americans have because Trump, the Trump administration was in charge. Uh, a dereliction of duty. I think the media should be held accountable for the false reporting during this last election. And uh, we need to make sure that we don't have them at the reins of controlling the presidential debate process if they're not going to be fair. So we're going to be very engaged with that. So let me follow up on that. I, I, and I want to make sure that people understand my audience goes crazy when I say this, but it's true. There are some fair people in mainstream news. I think Lester Holt, John Dickerson, uh, Dana Bash, I believe my friend Chuck Todd, they all do good jobs. They're all fair. But the producers and the editors, I mean, there's some good producers like John Reese at Meet the Press, who I work with often. There's some great producers, but generally 95 percent of the media are Democrats or Democrat sympathetic. Why do we let them have any role in the debates at all? And I don't care about the debate commission. Everybody knows that's an emperor with no clothes. That's just (laughs) a left wing organization. We should have nothing to do with it. Nothing. And if, if we do you agree with that? Nothing to do with it. Well, the problem is the FEC requires us to work with a bipartisan organization. So unless we need another one to pop up, and they've had a total monopoly on it. They created it. They've sat on it for decades, the members of the commission. There's no turnover. There's no term limits. There's no transparency in how it's governed. And they've controlled this process for so long. And when we looked for an alternative, even for President Trump, 
you can't because it has to be done by a bipartisan group. Otherwise, if the RNC ran it, it's, uh, it's considered an FEC violation. So we've got to figure the, that out. I agree that the FEC can be told to pound sand, though, about the Presidential Debate Commission. They can't dictate that. The, our candidates should just say we're not doing it with that gang because that gang and is all the, the candidates are going to have to come forward. It's going to be up to the candidate because the candidates are the one who determine working with the Commission on Presidential Debates. At that point, the RNC is the negotiator, the candidate. We'll now, be negotiating the, the primaries. That's it. Yeah. That's what I want to In the primaries in 2016, I participated in four of the 12 yeah, uh, primary debates. And I, I thought it was great. They had one person on each panel who was actually asking questions that Republicans wanted to ask. Why don't we just have panels like Mary Catherine Hamm and Guy Benson? And I can name you a hundred different people who would do it. You can organize that, can't you, Chairwoman? Yes, we are. We're working on that right now. So that's another part of this presidential debate committee. Just like in 2016 when the RNC created one to, to not have what we had in 2012 and the Romney campaign, we'll be doing the same thing and working out how we work with the uh, which moderators. And we do control the process for 2016. And we are going to make sure it's a fair process for our candidates with good moderators. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.